book of Revelation, chapter 17. I just want to, to say thank you to all of you. You know, you, you all know that we had our son and, uh, and we've received so much love, um, so many gifts and meals and just, we just feel the love and we're grateful, really. Uh, just thank you. Thank you. And um, yes, Revelation 17. And if anyone needs a Bible, just uh, lift a hand and... We'll make sure that you have one to follow along with us. Now, I don't, I'm not as good as Bobby. He could tell you what page it is. I can tell you just turn to the end. It's the last part there before you hit the index in the glossary, Revelation chapter 17. In many ways, the Bible can be summed up as the tale of two cities. Throughout scripture, we see the theme of these two cities constantly arising, interwoven within the themes and the pages of scripture. The first is, of course, Jerusalem. It means city of peace. Physically, it was the capital city of Israel. It was called the city of the king or the royal city by the Jews. Spiritually, Jerusalem was the place of God's presence. It was the place that God chose to have the temple erected, the place where the people would come to meet with him, to offer their gift, to fellowship together and to feast and rest. It was the place of Light in the place of truth where the word of God would be proclaimed and taught and where the things of God would be manifested and magnified. And it was a sanctuary of refuge for God's people. And it even is to this day to the Jew when they come into Jerusalem, they sing. A whole section of the Psalms is dedicated to just a trip to Jerusalem. The Psalms of Ascent that you read there in the 120s area of the book of Psalms. They would quote these Psalms as they go. So sacred, so powerful and meaningful was this city, Jerusalem, spiritually to the person of God. The second city that we see interwoven throughout the pages of Scripture is Babylon. Babylon means confusion. The physical existence of Babylon started in Genesis chapter 11. And you can turn there. If you, you know, I don't know what page it is again, but if you just flip all the way to the other side of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 11, we see the physical inception of this city that becomes a theme that we follow throughout the pages of Scripture. Unlike Jerusalem that was ordained by God, Babylon started as an act of rebellion against God. It began by a man named Nimrod, who the Bible tells us was a great one and a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it meant that he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was a rebellious, powerful man, a great one. And it was built in the plains of Shinar. And we read here in Genesis chapter 11, the story of Babylon's inception. It says that the whole earth was of one language and one speech. 
And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down. And there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, or confusion, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and listen, from thence, from thence, from there, from Babel, from Babylon, did the Lord scatter them abroad Upon the face of all the earth. Babylon itself started as an act of rebellion against God. When Noah and his sons came off the ark. God clearly gave instruction to them. That they were to spread out in the earth. And to multiply and subdue it. But what do we find just a short span. After the ark landed there on the mountains in Ararat. We find the people all clumped together, finding a place where they can build a city, saying, let us make a name, a city, and a tower for ourselves, lest we are scattered like God told us to. It was an act of rebellion, the very inception of the city. The ideals of Babylon are clearly stated there in the first four verses, which were, first of all, the achievement of man, independent from God. The way by which this achievement would take place was through human strength and ingenuity. Let us bake brick and burn them thoroughly. We'll make them secure. And they had brick in place of stone. One made by man, the other made by God. And their goal was to produce a sense of self-security. They said, lest we be scattered abroad throughout the face of the earth. And finally, their goal was to reach heaven on their own. They said, we'll make a tower whose top may reach up to heaven. So their ideals, the achievement of man independent from God. Their way through human strength and ingenuity. And their goal was to produce a sense of self-security and to reach heaven on their own. That's Babylon that we see arising to the surface and interwoven throughout the themes of Scripture from Genesis all the way to our text here tonight in Revelation chapter 17. Physically, the city of Babylon was abandoned and their goal was never achieved. They were scattered. The city was abandoned. They left off and they never completed the task. Their objective was delayed in making this happen and bringing it to pass. But listen carefully spiritually just as jerusalem had a spiritual aspect to it it wasn't just a physical place spiritually 
The ideals of Babylon were ingrained and sown into the hearts of the people that were there that participated. And then were from there scattered throughout all of the world. The ideals of Babylon were ingrained in the hearts and in the souls of men and women from there. From there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face. From the cradle of the post-flood civilization, the place of unity, the place of origin, the common root that all men had at that time, from there, the physical manifestation never materialized, but carried with those people into all the world where they went, were the ideals and the goals that were conceived in Babylon. The achievement of man, independent from God. Through ingenuity and independence and, 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 and through the will of man and the strength of man. For the sake of building a name for themselves and establishing a sense of false security and a sense of reaching heaven on their own. In Babylon, there in Genesis chapter 11, a current began. A tidal wave, if you would, that carried and has carried mainstream man in his decisions in his goals, and in his ideals for the past 6,000 years. That current, first of all, tells the world today that the will of God is optional, not imperative. That it isn't absolutely vital and necessary that you follow the will of God. That's an option. That is something that God has suggested, but it isn't imperative that we do the thing that God wants us to do. Second of all, this ingrained ideal that's sweeping the currents of men and women even to this day, is that the chief end of man is to glorify and magnify himself. That success is measured in upward mobility, to climb and to build, to promote and advance, that this is the way that we experience life, that we establish security, and that we are called successful. It's this upward climbing mentality. That's what Babylon represented. Brick by brick, course by course, a tower that reaches to the heavens. And finally, that the purpose of life, the reason why we exist upon this earth is to make us a name. That we, that we establish a status and a symbol for ourselves. That we live in an unrestrained pursuit for material wealth. All while possessing some semblance of religious virtue. We're going to heaven. We're righteous. We're pleasing to God. We live in that way. Now, in ancient Babylon that we read about there in Genesis chapter 11, the emphasis was on that which was physical and material. But the driving force behind it was completely spiritual and invisible. Do you understand? That the physical manifestation that was there in the plains of Shinar, that city and that tower started in an invisible ideal that was sown into the hearts and the minds of men. The emphasis was on the physical, but it started with the invisible. Now fast forward 6,000 years. And here we come to our study tonight of Revelation chapter 17. And though I believe that there will be a physical Babylon that will be built during the tribulation time, the Bible teaches that very clearly, I also believe that the invisible system of Babylon or Babylonian ideals 
has remained in construction since Genesis chapter 11 and is fully thriving and alive on the earth today. The byproduct of this Babylonian system that sweeps the currents of men and women even today, this current that has survived under the radar, not having a physical city and a physical tower, but yet living in the hearts and the lives of the people, is seen today very clearly in the superstructure of human governments. The complex function and operation of world governing systems, all driven by and and originating in the ideals that were sown in the hearts in Babylon. It's seen today in the empire of economics and intricate financial systems, the way world markets intertwine and integrate and move together and work together towards a Seemingly mysterious, but yet somehow there's an objective. There's something going on, and we see it. We see the ideals of Babylon working in this economic empire that is in our globe today. We see it in the monuments of material pursuits. The things that people give their lives to, that literally sell their soul to seek to achieve the glory of man, to make a name, to have security, to reach unto heaven. It's alive today. And it's also seen in the amassing or the very desire to amass and hoard personal wealth. And to gain and to climb. It's all Babylonian ideals that are alive and thriving today. The bricks of Babylon have been laid course by course in the lives of humans continually for the past 6,000 years. What was sown in the collective body of man in Genesis chapter 11, has continued and grown in every corner of the globe. Through the education systems of the world, it is continually laid course by course in the lives of children as they are propped and pushed into this current, into the system of society that drives and governs their thinking patterns and the way they move and conduct themselves in this world. It's continually propagated and buttressed in the entertainment industry. Constantly barraging and sowing itself into the minds of those that take in entertainment produced by this invisible Babylonian system. It's passed on through the ideals and examples that are given from generation to generation as parents raise children and then children raise children. And it's passed on this Babylonian current that sweeps the globe today. The heart and soul of Babylon is alive and well in the world today now listen the driving force behind this system is not a place nor is it a person nor is there anything that is tangible that can be traced back to the source maybe other than what took place in genesis chapter 11 but the system that we would call babylonian that we're discussing here in our bible study tonight is something that is completely intangible it's absolutely invisible It's an invisible current that sweeps humanity and brings it under its spell. But what is it? What is this thing? I mean, how can we, if if it's not something tangible, if it isn't something physical, then how do we describe it? Well, how does the Bible describe it? Here in Revelation chapter 17, as this system is the topic of our study time tonight. And the system is the thing that's being judged. Well, the Bible calls it there in verse 5, it calls it mystery Babylon. 
This invisible, intangible system that is sweeping the world is called Mystery Babylon because truly it is a mystery in all that it is. It's a mysterious thing. It's a spiritual thing. Now, chapter 17, the text that we're looking at tonight, what this is, is the judgment of God upon the system itself. In chapter 18, we'll see the judgment upon the physical manifestation of the system. But in chapter 17, we see the judgment of the invisibility of it. And, you know, props to the Apostle John, really, for being able to describe this to us. Because he does an incredible thing in in communicating something to us that is completely invisible. And it's incredible that as we go through this text, you're going to recognize it. You're going to see it. You'll relate to it because we live in it. We breathe it. We drink it daily. But this invisible system that's being judged. Now you remember from the end of chapter 16, our study last week in verse 19. As that last bowl of God's judgment was poured out upon the earth. It tells us there that the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And listen. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God. To give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So as the last bull, the last judgment is poured out, it tells us that now coming to the forefront of God's attention at the end of the tribulation, as all things are judged and set right, it says that Babylon now is the center of God's attention. And in chapter 17, he first deals with the system, the system that drives the world today. I like to think of it kind of like a computer. In our computers, and I'm not a tech-savvy kind of guy, but I know how to use one. And I understand that in the computer, there is an operating system that is the host for the programs that I use. So as long as the operating system is functional, I can get my email, I can get on the internet, I can do a Google search, I can you know, use the Bible program or whatever I want, because the server, or I mean the, the operating system is working, like Vista or you know, whatever you have, some kind of Windows thing or Apple, the operating system. What we're dealing with in chapter 17 is the operating system. In chapter 18, we get to the programs. They get destroyed too. But God deals with the operating system first. That which drives Babylon. This current, this system that is sweeping through the hearts and the lives of men and women today. Well, verses 1 through 6, John describes to us the attributes Of this system. What is it? What is this mystery Babylon? He says. And there came one of the seven angels. Which had the seven vials. And talked with me saying. Come unto me. Or saying unto me. Come hither. And I will show unto thee. The judgment of the great whore. That sitteth upon many waters. Now this is not John's perspective. We'll get that when we get into verse 3. But verses 1 and 2 is strictly the angelic view or the angelic perspective of this Babylonian system on planet earth today. And the first thing that this angel says as he invites John to come and see the judgment of this system is he describes it as a great whore that sits upon many waters. Now, what is a whore? Now, you think, why am I hearing this word in a Bible study? Because something just is not... You know, there's kind of like an error code here in my computer system because you're saying whore from the pulpit, you know, and this is weird already. Yeah, this is weird. 
Strap on your seatbelts because it gets worse. What is a whore? This system is called a whore. What is a whore? A whore is someone, traditionally and in context here, of someone who sells their body as an object of relational or sexual fulfillment for profit. That is what a whore is, and that is what this angel calls this system of Babylon that drives the world, the operating system of this world, if you would. He calls it, first of all, a whore. A whore, in the relationship that is experienced in that context, is fake. It's a fake relationship. It's designed to excite, to allure, to attract, and to deceive. If a person sees, and I'll make this as as gender neutral as I can because I don't want to offend anybody. If a person sees a whore on the side of the road, they see someone that's dressed in a certain way, that's suggesting something through their posture and what they're offering. And in their mind, as they consider the option or the opportunity to patronize this person, there is a fantasy that's being birthed. The fantasy of a relationship, the fantasy of intimacy, the fantasy of something that is real, but it is absolutely fake by its very nature. Because it's not being done out of the motive of love, which is the real motive of a relationship or intimacy. But it is done for the sake of profit to try to get something, and therefore it isn't real. A relationship with a whore implies that, first of all, that there is absolutely no commitment or bind at all in the, in the joining there of the, in that relationship. That there is no faithfulness, there is no promise, there is nothing sacred about it. It is completely a mutual using the one of the other, one for profit, one for pleasure, and then they go their separate ways and it is a completely broken system. There is nothing faithful about it, nothing abiding, nothing lasting. It's false. There's no compassion or sincere care between the two people. There may be the putting forth that there is or the suggestion that it might be possible, but there isn't. It completely doesn't exist. It is a profit and pleasure transaction that's happening. It's business. There's nothing happening in that relationship beyond a fantasy. It's a whore. A whore cares nothing for those that use it. The interests of the whore are completely selfish. Leaves you feeling defiled, depleted, unloved, and broke. Because the purpose, the motive behind that whore was to take something from you by deception. And the person that patronizes it, fantasizes about receiving one thing, gets the pleasure that they intended, but is left feeling destitute. Now this is how, first of all, this system is described. That from God's perspective, as he looks at the operating system of this world, he says it's a whore. It isn't real. It's fake. It's designed to allure. It's designed to excite. It's designed to attract. But in all essence, all it does is deceive and leave destitute. That's what the system of this world does. In its very nature, it cannot meet the things that it promises to do. Because a whore gives the picture of fullness, the picture of satisfaction, the picture of meaning in life. But it's not real. It's all fake. It doesn't exist. And John says the system, sorry, the angel says the system is a whore. The second thing he says is that it's the whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now in verse 15, he tells us what that means. The Bible is the best you know, interpreter of the Bible. In verse 15, it says that he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth, are 
peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And what this is telling us is that this system that is described as a whore is a universal system. It isn't just true in the United States of America. This isn't something that he describes using Hong Kong or the cities of the world or Amsterdam or Las Vegas or Bar Harbor, Maine. This is universal. That the operating system of Babylon drives and governs the entire globe. Many waters. It isn't isolated to a single place or to a few people, but we are all touched and affected by the system. In verse 2, he goes on, and he now describes the relationship that this whore has with the world. He says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he gives two aspects of this relationship, this whorish relationship that Babylon has with the world in verse 2. First of all, it says that the kings of the world have committed fornication with her. Now, fornication, we understand what that is. Fornication is an informal, non-committal relationship that is intended to meet selfish purposes. It is relations outside of the bond of marriage. It is a temporary relationship that has no commitment, nothing binding involved in it. It is a temporary meeting or joining. And it tells us that the kings of the earth or the rulers, the great ones of the earth, have patronized or used this system in this way. So what does it mean when it tells us that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with this system? It means that the kings and the rulers of the world have used the system that is called a whore to gratify their own desires. Now what are the desires of the kings and the rulers and the great ones of the earth? First of all, to procure power. They're power hungry. That's what they want. That's what they desire to gain, to have more of, and to enjoy and hold on to and not let go of. To procure power. Second of all, to amass wealth. Whatever they can do to have more, to grow the economies, to bring in more for themselves. And then finally, the third thing is to experience pleasure. Now, because of the massive amounts of news media that we are exposed to and the massive amount of coverage of all of the leaders and the kings of all these various places when you hear the stories of what's going on around the world what do you find that these rulers are seeking after power wealth pleasure i won't talk about the new york congressmen you know because i can't say i mean i mean i said whore i might as well but you know but what is this? Now, how is it that they're getting these things, the power, the wealth, and the pleasure? It's by using the system of this world. It's by using Babylon. There's a relationship there. There's something there where they're taking this whorish system and they're employing it for their own purposes of procuring power, of gaining and seeking wealth, and experiencing pleasure. That is the desire of the kings of the earth. And that's their relationship with the system of this world. This Babylonian thing that's been alive and well in the world. Now the reason that they're able to do it is the second half of this verse. It says not only did the kings of the earth commit fornication with her. But listen, the second part is that the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now listen, because how many people in here are kings? Any kings in here? No kings. I thought so. You know, I did have a king section. I'll just cross that off. You know, that doesn't apply. How many people are inhabitants of the earth? Not kings. 
You know, that's us. Okay, so which applies to us more, part A or part B? Part B, that's right. We are the inhabitants of the earth. And what does it say about us and our relationship with the system? It says, listen, listen carefully, that we have been made what? Drunk. We have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. We have been made drunk with the wine. What does it mean to be drunk? It means, listen carefully, it means to be intoxicated by its power. To be placed under its spell. To be brought under its influence, resulting in impaired rational ability. That's what it means to be drunk. And it says here that the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that you're drunk or intoxicated or under the spell and influence of this thing blurring your judgment? Well, let me, let me try to help you understand this because I understand full well what this means. See, I wake up very early in the morning. Not to pray because that's not why. And I fumble out of bed and I put one leg in at a time. And then I go downstairs and I trip over the cat. And I try to get the coffee in the cup and not on the counter. And I make my way through my morning routine and get out the door. And at this time of year, about the time the birds start to chirp, there I am making my way towards the grand old Taconic Parkway. And as I get on the Taconic Parkway and I am joined one by one as the exits pass by by more people like myself that are making our way towards the south... As I'm going, I'm driving along, and as the sun begins to rise, I look off to my left, and I see a golf course. I see rolling hills. I see nicely groomed landscapes. I see trees that are perfectly pruned and cut, just the picture of beauty, picturesque scene. And then I see there on that golf course early in the morning a cart riding. And there in that cart, a young fellow with a collared short sleeve shirt and a pair of sunglasses and what seems from that distance to be a tan upon his face and a smile, a glitter and a sparkle coming from his teeth. And as the mist from the morning dew sprays up from the wheels and he makes his way down the course, I look over and then I look back at the road and then I look down at what I'm wearing and I consider where I'm going and what I'm going to endure for the next seven or eight hours of the day and what it's going to take for me to get from where I am back home and everything that I have to do in that day and I begin to get intoxicated because I think wow it must be really nice to be playing golf at six o'clock on a Wednesday morning in the middle of summer and not driving down the Taconic going to work Maybe I'm flipping channels in the evening after a hard day work and I'm flipping through and I come to the travel channel. And there they are, the rolling hills, the rocky mountains, the crystal clear lakes, the sandy beaches. And you see not the people in totality, you just see their feet up with their toes. They look relaxed, you know. An umbrella there, a palm tree overshadowing the crystal clear ocean, the salt water. You can almost feel the warm breeze through the living room, through the TV set as you listen to them talk about this place. Or when I was a child, you'd hear the voice of Robin Leach saying, And that's the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know. 
And you begin to get intoxicated because then you begin to look around and you think, well, you know, I might be able to taste that if I got a vacation someday, but uh, that's a pretty cool house there in that place. And what would it be like to live there? You begin to get intoxicated. Or you're driving along and pulls up next to you is a nice Porsche Carrera, you know, curved convertible, the top is down. The sunglasses, the wind in the hair. It seems to be a rich, young businessman. He's on the phone, and as you look over, you think to yourself, man, he's making money right now. <laughs> Forbes Fortune 500 there on the, dri- the passenger seat next to him. You know, he's got it all put together. He's got it made. I look down, there's a coloring book on the... <laughs> I knew I was doing something wrong. What happens is, it's very funny, but you know what happens is that you begin to get intoxicated. You start to think about how hard you have to work just to keep things going. What it takes for you to just simply maintain an ordinary standard of living, and you're killing yourself going through all the motions to not have anything left when tab A and tab B are all flushed out, and you're happy if it's just even. But when you look at these things, you begin to think, well, what would I have to do in order to get? And then all of a sudden, you find yourself beginning to get swept up in this current. You begin to become intoxicated by the system of this world. That, listen, if you want to do it, you've got to, listen, pay your dues. Did you hear it? Because you get out what you put in. The problem with the system this Babylonian brick building that we begin to enjoin ourselves upon because of a desire that we have to perhaps have it a little easier than we do. We want to be the guy on the golf course in the morning. We want to be the guy in the Porsche on the phone making money while we're driving in. We want to be the guy that lives in the Scandinavian mountains overlooking a crystal clear private lake. That's what we want to be. And so we begin to think, what do I have to do? And the brick building in our lives begins as we become intoxicated by the world's system. Pay your dues and you too can have dot, dot, dot. This is the land of opportunity. This is the United States of America. This is a capitalist society. And if you can do it anywhere, you can do it here. So start building. And the inhabitants of the world become now intoxicated by this fornication, whorish system. I'm doing this so that I can have freedom. I'm doing this so that I can be independent. I'm doing this so that I can have a sense of security. What does that sound like? Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Let us make us a city and a tower. And make a name for ourselves. Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And we begin, even as Christians, to become intoxicated by this system, this Babylonian whorish system. We get out of college and we get our first apartment. And then we, you know, have a little bit of energy. We get a job. We get our first job. We start to make a little bit of money. We get a car. We conquer that first car payment. You know, maybe we pick up a wife or a husband. And then we get a little bit of a better job or promotion. And then we say, well, now we can afford a house. And so now you move into the house, you move into the house, you get a promotion, you get a bigger car. And now you got your car, you got your house, you have a couple kids, and now, oh, and all of a sudden, you know what you're doing? You're climbing. You're starting to climb. You're starting to go. We're heading there. But listen, here's the problem. Are you listening? The system is a whore. That's the problem. 
The system is a whore. The problem with a whore is that, listen, it's not yours. It's not yours. She's a whore. She's not yours. You're not married to her. You don't get to keep her. You don't get to keep any of it. It's not real. Everything that you achieve and gain operating in the system of this world, you can only keep it as long as you keep paying for it. As soon as you stop paying for it, you no longer get to keep it. The second problem is that you, it can't satisfy you because always in the back of your mind, you know that it's fake. You know you can't keep it. You know it's not real. See? And that's the problem. I mean, think about it in the context of the whore that John is talking about. Because here's what happens to a person. Let's say a person, they're seeking that relationship. They're seeking that fellowship. They're seeking that fulfillment. And so they go and they hire a whore. And that's going to be their person. That's going to be, and they hire that person. And that person is being paid to tell them that they love them. They're being paid to give them affection and attention. And so though they're getting the affection, they're getting the attention, and they're getting the facade and the feeling as though all of those things are real, in the back of their mind, they can never escape the reality of the fact that I'm only hearing these things and experiencing these things because I'm paying for it. And it's the same thing that's true in this Babylonian system. It's not really yours. You only get to keep it, you only get to taste it, you only get to experience the freedom, the security, or the peace that it brings as long as you keep paying for it, but it isn't really yours, and ultimately you can't take it with you. And here's the bigger secret. Are you ready for this one? Verse 2 tells us that it's the kings of the earth that have committed this fornication. And look at their mentality towards the system that they seemingly conquered. Look at verse 16. It says that the ten horns which thou sawest, and those are the ten kings, according to verse 12. I don't have time to read you every verse, you know. But these kings, the ten horns, these, listen, shall hate the whore. And shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What's this telling us? It's telling us, listen, that those that have what everyone else wants, the kings... The golfers, the Porsche drivers, the movers, the shakers, the billionaires, those that seem to have the whole system in the world by the tail, they're not happy. They hate the very system that's employed them in the first place. The very things that symbolize the freedom that people are chasing after in all of these vain pursuits, these things that they're chasing after that are the symbol of freedom are themselves the chains that bind them. fake we all know it's true we tasted it the biggest problem with the system is that in chapter 18 the system and everything in it is destroyed how vain it is then to have spent a life building amassing chasing something that isn't real i grew up near niagara falls and I remember the first time I ever went there as a child, old enough to remember. And we went to the Niagara River. We were maybe 100 feet from where the falls drop off. And there's a place where you can get real close to the edge. And I remember seeing the speed and the force of that current there, the water that was rushing towards those falls. And it was so powerful, it almost grips you like it shocks you just to see water moving that fast, having such power. I mean, you almost feel as if you were to reach out and touch it it would just grab your hand and pull you in and just sweep you away in the current. And that'd be the end of you. Just you're going over the falls. And I'll never forget that picture in my mind of the strength of that current. Well, listen, the current that is Babylon, that is sweeping with its force throughout the world today, 
It's just as strong of a current. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're someone who's blinded to these things and you're just walking in the world. If you get swept up in this current, it will drag you along with it. It's a very powerful, a very intoxicating servant. Current. Well, this is the angelic perspective that we see in verse 2. Now in verse 3, we get to see what John sees when he sees it. In verse 3, it says, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And I saw, this is what John sees now. First of all, a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We first of all see this woman that the angel describes as a whore. John says he sees a woman. She's sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy that has seven heads and ten horns. This woman that's riding upon a beast. Now, the beast we already know from our studies in chapter 13 and throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the Bible, that this beast is the Antichrist and his kingdom. But that's what this beast represents. And we see now this relationship that this woman, this whore, this system has with this government or this governor, this antichrist in his ruling kingdom. It says that she is sitting upon the beast. Notice the relationship. That the two of these things are riding together. The king and his kingdom and the system used to build it are working together. There is a relationship between the system and between the government that it's acting upon. Now, here we see the woman that's riding upon the beast. She's using the beast to fulfill her purposes. In other words, this woman, this whore, has something that she's trying to do. She has an agenda. She's personified. She's made alive. She's made real. And she is seeking to accomplish something, and she is using the Antichrist in his kingdom to do it. Now, conversely, the Antichrist, the beast, is also using her. If you look at verse 7... It says that the angel said unto me, wherefore did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, listen, and of the beast that carrieth her. So in verse 3, it's the woman that's sitting upon the beast. In verse 7, it's the beast that's carrying her. And I believe that's significant, that that it says it both ways. Because what we discover is that these two things are using each other to accomplish their purposes. She has an agenda, and she's employing that system to to carry it about. He has an agenda, and he is using that system to bring it to pass. There's a relationship between the two. But there's an aspect to the beast that's told to us here in verse 3 that's shown to us for the first time. It tells us that it is full of the names of blasphemy, and it tells us that the color of the thing is scarlet. Now, scarlet is always the color of righteousness in the Bible. It is a spiritual thing. Without fail, every time that you see it, there is a spiritual connotation to this scarlet color that we see. The names of blasphemy also give it a spiritual connotation, that it is equating it with divinity in some way, that there is some relationship between this beast and some kind of divinity or some kind of deity. Now, there has always been and there always will be a relationship or an aspect of religious or spiritual activity in the Babylonian system. 
Now, we, we understand that from Genesis chapter 11. You know, we understand it throughout the history of the prophets and what they said to Babylon. There was a, a huge occultic aspect of Babylon. Much of it was pagan in nature. Uh, a lot of it was even Christianized. We talked about that when we discussed the church of Thyatira back in Revelation chapter 2. You know, a, a, the Babylonian system is a spiritual thing. But here's the difference between the religious system of Babylon and the religious system of the church, the true church. Is that in the Babylonian system, all religion, any religion is permissible so long as it is not the religion of the cross. You can call yourself a Buddhist. You can call yourself uh, a Muslim. You can call yourself a Catholic. You can call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself a Protestant or a Catholic or you can call yourself anything you want in the Babylonian system. It is all permissible. Anything but Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and glorified. Anything goes in Babylon. But know for sure that there is a spiritual aspect to Babylon historically, presently, and what is yet to come. And that's what John sees as he sees the scarlet colored beast. Now, some have suggested that the religion of Antichrist kingdom will be some form of Roman Catholicism. I don't believe that to be exclusive. I believe that there will be a a large part of it, or at least some part of it, that will be there. The, The Roman church will exist during the tribulation period. We see that in the seven letters. Jesus said, unless you repent, I will cast you and them that commit fornication with you into a bed of tribulation. We we know that that's going to happen. But I don't believe that this scarlet-colored beast and this woman with the cup represents the Roman system. I believe that that will be a part of it, but not all of it. See, part of the human condition, the human psyche, is that we want to feel righteous. We want to feel like we're doing the right thing. We want to feel like we have approval from above and help from the divine. And so, therefore, it will be essential during the tribulation, that there be some form of religious system, that people have this feeling as though they are doing the will of God and pleasing God. What they call themselves will be irrelevant, and it will not matter to the beast so long as they give their allegiance to him. We saw that back in chapter 13, that when they take the mark, they give him their worship, their allegiance. So is it Romanism? I don't think so. I don't know what role that will play, but what I do see here is that this beast is filled with the names of blasphemy. And that there is a very clear spiritual connotation to the relationship that the beast has with this woman that will govern and operate in its full strength during the tribulation time. It says in verse 4 that the woman was arrayed in purple, which is the color of royalty, and scarlet. So royalty and righteousness will be what she claims to possess and claims to impart. And it says that she is decked with, and listen to this, gold and precious stones and pearls. Gold, precious stones, and pearls. She's very attractive in her attire and in what she is decked with. That is what the picture is. That's what she looks like. And it says that in her hand, she has a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So John looks at this woman and he sees royalty He sees righteousness, he sees riches, and he sees pleasures. That's all that this woman represents as she rides upon this beast. And notice the effect that this has. Verse 5, it says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, he says, I wondered with great admiration. Did you catch that? When I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. John himself was intoxicated by the beauty and the allurement and the attraction of this woman. He says, I marveled. I wondered with great admiration. I was immediately drawn in. I was immediately intoxicated by what I was seeing, even to the point where in verse 7 it says, And the angel said unto me, Why did you marvel? Wherefore did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. Now that's, that's amazing to me, because he, well, when we get into verse 8, he tells us that those that, whose names are not written in the book of life, that they will wonder after this woman. You know, so John wonders after her, and the angel's like, why are you wondering after her? You know, I check the books, is his name in there? You know, kind of a thing, you know. You know, but, 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 but listen, here's what's happening, because you see this angelic perspective, this heavenly perspective of this whole system. And from the angelic realm, from heaven's perspective, it is whorish, it is deceptive, it is destructive. And yet, from even John's perspective, who is earthly somewhat in his mentality, he was attracted to it. From an earthly mentality, it was very alluring. It was very attractive. It looked like this is what I want. This is what I was made for. This is what I'm driving towards. But even the angel says, why did you marvel? Listen, it's all a wrapper. It's a deceptive wrapper. That's all it is. It's a package. We're good at packaging things, aren't we? You know, you look at a Snickers bar, and when you see it, or you look at a pack of peanut M&Ms, and you're like, yeah, you know what's in there? (laughs) It's a deceptive wrapper, believe me. We'll see what it does to you, you know. But then in verses 8 through 14, and I'm going to breeze through this section, not because I want to avoid it, but because we've covered the beast. He first describes this beast. I want to take tonight and concentrate on the whore. So we're going to breeze through the beast here in verse 8. It says that the beast that you saw was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now in chapter 13 we saw this and we discussed that this is Rome. Rome historically is the city that has seven hills and a revived Roman Empire will in some way incorporate itself into the position and the place of the beast. And then he says that there are seven kings. Five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition, or into the tribulation. Now this is just a brief synopsis of everything that Daniel saw in his prophecies that we've looked at, and everything that we've discussed already in chapter 13, and in our studies about the beast. You know, the only thing maybe here that is lent to our understanding that we don't see in other places, is that there's some implication here that perhaps, the spirit of Antichrist is a revived version of perhaps Caesar Nero. The five Roman emperors that existed prior to John's writing this, 
And then Domitian, the sixth, who was the empire at the time. And then of the seventh that would continue for a short span. But then him that was not or was, but now is not and yet will be. Some commentators believe that perhaps it'll be a revived version of Nero in some way. And, and that fits. You know, he was a psychopath. He killed Christians. He, you know, lit them on fire like candles and then rode on his horse nakedly through his gardens, you know, in insanity and ultimately committed suicide. That's a good description of the beast, you know. But beyond that, we don't know. But it says that there are ten horns, or it says, verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and their strength unto the beast. We talked about the ten regions, the ten toes of Daniel's prophecy, you know, these ten kings that will come, that will rule with the beast for that season. And it says in verse 14 that these, these ten kings aligned with the Antichrist shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them for he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And they that are with him, that will be you and I, praise the Lord, if you know him, are called and chosen and faithful. So he discusses in these verses, verses 8 through 14, the beast that was carrying this woman. And we understand it's Antichrist and it's his system. But now in verse 15 through the end, verse 18, he jumps back now to describe or develop further for us this horror and what will become of her. It says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Again, a universal system. There is not one place or person on this planet that is not in some way touched by this system and what it does and what it is. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and shall burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Now, what do we see? First of all, everyone's affected. Second of all, we see that these kings that have used this system for their own profit, for their own gain, for their own pleasure, for their own power, that these kings ultimately hate this system, and they will, when they have chance, destroy it. I find this very interesting because here's, here's what happens. And this is why I believe these Kings hate the system because they've made it to the top. They did it, whether they were born into it and were able to enjoy it throughout their time or whether they were, you know, someone who started as nothing and then ultimately became these incredible emperors, you know, of these systems or these mighty people. What happens is they get to the top And then they stand there and they realize, that's it? Or they stand there and they realize, I'm only halfway there. Because there's so much more that they could have, more that they could gain. And eventually what happens is that these people, these kings, they wake up and they realize, you know, I've been using the system. I've been building and laying these bricks course by course. But you know what? Heaven never comes. I never get that feeling like I'm, I'm at peace. I never feel like I'm secure. I never feel like there's enough. I never feel like I've made it or I've attained or that I'm stable. 
I never have felt it. I've been doing this for years. I'm a multi-gazillionaire. I have a garage that has 50 cars in it. I have houses in every corner of the globe. I can go anywhere I want. I'll fly there on my jet. I'll take time on my yacht. I can do anything I want, and yet I'm not satisfied. And eventually you come to the point and you realize this has all been for nothing. I have wasted my entire life. I have watched my family or my families come and go and be dissolved and torn apart on the waves of this world. I've seen everything that's meaningful, everything that could last, everything that could be eternal. I have seen it destroyed and I've seen its demise because I have given every ounce of my energy to trying to build the system that promised so much and yet gives nothing. And it says that they will hate her. Just like Amnon, who wanted Tamar so bad, he says that it made him sick he wanted her so bad. And then finally, his friend convinced her to rape her. And he got what he wanted. And it says that the hatred that he held towards her after that exceeded the love wherewith he had loved her at the first. And so too will it be with every person that picks up Babylon's bricks and begins to lay them down and say, I am going to build myself a name. I am going to grab life by the tail and I'm going to make it work for me. I guarantee you you will come to a point where you will despise the day that you held that brick in your hand and said, I am going to live for this world. Because even the very kings that prospered in it, hated it. They will make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and shall burn her with fire because they will realize it was all a lie. Solomon, the richest, wisest man that ever lived, woke up one morning and said, I can't take any of this with me. I got to leave it to a fool. And thank God the guy was saved. Because he can come to the end and say, listen, the summation of his all is fear God. Serve him. That's the only place you're going to find life. That's the only place where there's ever going to be any satisfaction in you at all. In verse 17, we're told that God is sovereign, that he will put it in them to fulfill his will because ultimately, in the end, he will win. The kings of the earth, read Psalm 2. It says that the kings of the earth rose together against the Lord and against his anointed. But it says that the Lord will have them in derision, confusion. Because ultimately, he is the sovereign. He will win. And then in verse 18, it says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now listen, buildings and sidewalks do not reign over people. Do you understand that? That he isn't talking about a physical place or a physical structure. He is talking about the system that runs it. He's talking about Babylon. The same Babylon that has carried the current of this world's system 6,000 years. God says it's nothing but a whore. It's fake. It's phony. It isn't real. We got to close, but what do we do with this? What do we do with this study? Because, you know, if I were to ask by show of hands, and if I were to be honest, even myself, and, and I were to ask and say, how many of you feel as though you've been intoxicated by the system, at least somewhat? And don't raise your hand, but if I were to say by show of hands, I would go out on a limb to say, if you were honest, if I was honest, a fair amount of hands would rise up and say, yeah, you know what? 
I have from time to time spent time thinking about how I can get to that place. I have seen that guy on the golf course and wished I was him. And I have invested energy and thought into thinking, how can I get there? I have been swept away in that current somewhat. So so what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What am I saying to you? What's the objective of this Bible study? Are we supposed to quit our jobs, sell our homes, get rid of our cars, get a horse, you know, be Puritans? Is that is that the answer? You know, is that how we kind of wake up or, you know, sober up out of this system? No, that's not what I'm saying. But let me read to you Jesus's prayer journal. See, my wife asked me a long time ago, early in our marriage, not to read her prayer journal because she said if she, she knew I was reading it, it would affect what she put in there. You know, if she knows I'm not reading it, then she feels like she's free, right? So I don't read my wife's prayer journal. But if I really didn't understand something, really wanted to know, that's where I would go. I'd look, well, I just want to know what she's praying about. Well, John 17, we have a page of Jesus' prayer journal. This is what Jesus is praying. This is what's on his mind for his people, for you and I here tonight. Let me read to you from the prayer journal of Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 6, he said, I have manifested thy name unto them that thou hast gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and I, they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. And I have given unto them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now listen, verse 9. He says, I pray for them. This is Jesus praying for you. Listen to what Jesus prays for you. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are yours. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. That's you and I. We're in the world. We're in the current. We're in the system. Holy Father, Keep through thine own name those that thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee. And these that I speak, or these things that I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are, listen, not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now listen in verse 15. If you've tuned me out, tune me back in. Verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Pause for a second. He says, I am not praying, Father, that you would take them out of the world. but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. He doesn't say, sell your house, sell your car, quit your job, buy a horse, and live independently in seclusion waiting. He says, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. Why? He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify. Do you know what that word means? Separate. Separate them how? With their farms? With their land? Keep them far away from everything that is in any way or any sense worldly? No. How shall we be separated? Separate them through thy truth. 
thy word is truth. The way they live, what is living in their heart, the the ideals and functions that they operate by, the rules and the government of their kingdom, Father, separate them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. They will be in the world, but they will not be of the world because the word of God, the truth of God shall separate them from those that are affected by the evil. Do you follow what Jesus is asking? Why again now, verse 18, as thou, listen, has sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself or separate myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Do you hear what Jesus is praying? Do you hear the pulse, the heartbeat of his prayer? He's not saying sell all and be separate in the sense of physically. But he's saying that we're to be sanctified by the truth of God. That we're to be in this world, yet not of this world. And what sets us apart is to be the truth of God that's alive and working within our hearts. And that the result of that is that now, listen, and this is it. No longer are we swept up in the current of this system as the people in the world trying to climb, trying to gain, trying to build. But rather now, our mentality as we operate on planet Earth is that we have been sent just as Jesus has been sent for the purpose of bringing people out of that whorish system and into freedom and life. That is what we've been called to do. That's what it means when it says in chapter 18, we'll see next week, come out of her, my people. Stop living under Babylonian ideals. Stop being operated and driven by the principles of self-glory and self-worth and self-wealth and self-help, and self-security, and self-sufficiency. And become dependent upon the King of Kings and live for heaven. Listen to what the Apostle Paul told the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 3. He says, listen, and this is it, I'm closing. I know I'm so late. Please forgive me, I'm going to beat myself up for a week over this one. But listen, because I believe this is important. I believe this is of the Lord. And I believe that there are people here tonight that right now God is speaking to you specifically. If ye then be risen with Christ. If you are saved. If you are really serious about your commitment to Christ. And the call that he has placed upon your life. And the future hope that you have in heaven. If you are risen with Christ. Then this is how you're to live. Seek those things which are above. Not brick building above. Not terrestrial above the kingdom in the Norwegian hills. But above that, heaven. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. Not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, listen, when Christ, not when you're 65 and eligible to collect Social Security. Not when the 401k reaches its max and it's the most strategically sensical for you to call in the retirement and throw in. No, when Christ, that's when, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then 
shall ye also appear with him in glory. Here is what the Lord is speaking to us tonight. This is the word of God for Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley tonight. Listen. Stop aiming towards things earthly. Look higher. Stop looking at your life as a time span that has to have a beginning, an earning period, a body, and then a retirement. And that the goal is to make this part smaller and this part larger, this part easier and this part richer. Stop it. Because you're missing it. When Christ shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. And this is the word. Get your head on straight. Readjust your thinking. Our hope as Christians is not to have a better life now and here on earth. Our hope as Christians is heaven. Our kingdom, our glory is yet to come. That is the gospel. That is where faith comes into this whole thing. You know that whole thing about being saved by faith? Believing God and it being, this is what we believe in. That this is not our home. This is not our life. We are pilgrims and strangers here and we're aiming for a higher kingdom. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear in him in glory. Therefore, the time that we're here on earth and the function that we're to fulfill while we walk upon this planet is to do the will of God. There is work to do. Do you understand that? That's why we're here. We're here because there's work to do. The reason why you and I are driving down the Taconic Parkway at the stupid hours of the morning, you know, and, and grinding our way through a work day and suffering the things that we suffer and dealing with tragedies at home and things in our families and all this, the reason is because there's things for us to learn. There's work for us to do. We'll get our rest, and believe me, our retirement's going to be good and long and rich. But Jesus said, didn't he, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But rather, he said, lay up and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where those things cannot affect your possessions. And then he said, the result of that mentality is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is towards things earthly, you will be swept up and carried away in the current of Babylon and you will stand one day on a pile of broken bricks full of regret that you wasted your life trying to do something earthly. But if you give yourself completely to the will of God, Surrender your life absolutely to his purposes and his kingdom and his work and his will. Then you will live a satisfied life on earth and you will have a rich inheritance eternally. Listen to the words of scripture. Come out of her, my people. Be separate, saith the Lord. Let the word of God sanctify your heart and your mind. Don't waste your life. Live it for what really endures, what really matters. May God give us wisdom. There's work to do. Let's stand and pray together. Even as you pray, Jesus, you said that I have given them thy word. 
And Lord, tonight you gave us your word. Such insight, Lord. Such revelation, such knowledge. Lord, we see these things every day. We're swimming in this current, this world, this system. We see its effects. We see the damage that it does. We taste the frustration that it produces. And as your people especially, Lord, we see right through the lie that it is. How I pray tonight, Lord, for each person here, that we would have the grace to set our affections on things above. To understand this world, its course, its ways, and its destiny. And to give our lives completely to you. I pray for any that are here tonight, Lord, that even this very day they've said, that's it. I'm grabbing life by the tail. I'm going to get things right. I'm going to work my way into a better future. I pray for those people, Father. Give them your peace. Give them your word. Give them your wisdom. Give them your love. Give them your perspective. Help us, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that has our priorities right. That we understand that time is short. And that we'd see clearly the work that you've given us to do. And you would help us to lift our eyes a little bit higher off of our golden years and onto streets of gold. Please, Lord, give us a glimpse. Give us a taste of what's coming. Remind us, Lord. I pray that as we sing this last song, Lord, you would fill our hearts with wonder, the wonder of what's coming, the wonder of who you are. That, Lord, as we see this woman with the cup in her hand, these delicacies that she offers, that we would see your hand, Lord, pierced and scarred, in no way trying to prostitute or propagate some system or use us for your twisted purposes. But you've bought us with your love. You said, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. With everlasting kindness. Help us, Lord. Help us. I pray you give us fresh vision, fresh faith. Fullness of hope. And vision for our lives and destiny. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name.